Father, we, we ask for your wisdom, your insight, that we might be solid in the word, that we might be a peg that is driven hard into the ground because we're standing on your word, not on our opinions, not what other people say, say not what the world dictates, but we can be confident what your word has to say and maybe glean from your scripture the truths that are hidden here. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, do you guys remember a singer by the name of Keith Green? I have his CD set. I used to have his cassettes. I uh, didn't have an 8-track, but I had the cassettes, and I'd listen to him, Mana Burgers, Banana Souffle, Mana Souffle. And he, he, he was a very influential uh, singer and, quote-unquote, amateur philosopher, and he had this... Um, letter a newsletter last day's ministries and before he died tragically in a plane crash he was going against the catholic church and everything the catholic church taught and how it's a different gospel anyhow he wrote this song in 1980 it was released and this is one little stanza from the song and the song is oh lord you're beautiful it reads i want to take your word and shine it all around but first help me to just live it lord And when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown, for my reward is giving glory to you. Now, is that theologically accurate? Should we seek after a crown? Should we seek after a reward? Well, what are the rewards that we might receive? What does scripture say? I think that there are several, a multitude of rewards, but there are five specific rewards that the Bible calls out, these crowns. The first one is the crown of righteousness. Then there's the incorruptible crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of life, and the crown of glory. Five crowns that God says are available for us. Paul talks about these. And I'm going to talk about these, not too in-depth, but just give you an overview. The crown of righteousness is listed in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. And it says, finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So those who live a faithful life, a righteous life, and Christ is our righteousness, he will give the crown of righteousness. Now, in my opinion, that's everybody. Everybody gets a crown of righteousness. And there's... This idea, some, some people don't want the Lord to come back just yet because they have things they want to do. Now, I can remember this when I was going to Calvary Chapel, North Park, later Horizon Christian Fellowship, and Mike would talk about the coming of the Lord. And I would think, I'm not married yet, and I want to be married, and I want to have kids. I'd like to buy a house, and then the Lord can come. You know, that's the way I was thinking back then, 21, 22 years old. And that's what I wanted to do. But we don't realize that whatever this life has to offer pales in comparison to the glory that awaits us. And so we should all be saying, Lord, if it's today, great. I don't have anything else I want to do. And some people would say, well, that's easy for you to say. You're an old guy. You know, what about, what about the young people? They want to do stuff first. Well, what if the person says, I want to get married first. You know what Paul said about marriage? Now, there is marital bliss. It's wonderful. It's like, oh, we're still in love and the little hearts and the notes and, oh, dinners and roses and just all of that. It's great. But Paul warned people. He said, you know, I'd rather you stay as I am because 
Those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. If you are married, you have faced troubles. Sometimes troubles where it's a two or three day mad or a week mad and you don't talk and you're just looking at each other. And then it gets to the point where you brush by each other and you kind of smile, but this is not solved yet. You know, and you get this conflict going and then there are times and good times, but there's a lot of suffering because you put two sinners together. What are you going to get? You're going to get problems. If you put two swords together, you're going to get sparks. And, and so the world would say, get married, don't worry about God. The Christians would say, get married, hopefully God comes back a little bit later and you get to get married. Excuse me, you get to get married. Or what if you say, but I want to have kids first. Well, what does scripture say about children? You don't know what you're going to get. It's like a, the philosopher said, it's like a box of chocolates. <laughs> you know, some of them are good. My, one of my daughters had this thing at Christmas time we had this tradition of getting C's candy and so you open up the C's candy sometimes it's a one pound box sometimes it's a two pound box and she would go in there and she'd pick one out I think I like this one she'd take a bite and go oof and put half of it back you know it has like, she didn't like that one but the Bordeaux's and the truffles you know and all those those were good well with children you might end up with a foolish child which will cause you heartache all the days of your life. Proverbs 17:25. A foolish son brings grief to his father and bitterness to the one who bore him. Or you could have a son or a daughter that listens to the wisdom in the book of Proverbs and all through the scripture, and you're so blessed by the end of your life, you're going, wow, Lord, you have really blessed me with these kids. You don't know what you're going to get. It could be good. It could be bad. It could be somewhere in the middle. Or if you want to say, well, I want to grow old, but not too old. You know, and how does everybody want to die? In their sleep. They want to die in their sleep. Nobody wants to suffer when you come to the end of your life. You know, a day of your death is better than the day of your birth, no matter what age you are. Because there's no suffering, there's no toiling, there's no difficulty, there's no hardship, there's no martyrdom, that type of thing. You, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth because you have heaven that awaits you and heaven is so much better. That's reiterated in Ecclesiastes 7 verses 1 and 2. It says, A good name is better than fine perfume and a day of death better than the day of birth. And so it's just our view, what, how we view life, whether or not we would really welcome the crown of righteousness. And there's the incorruptible crown. This is a victor's crown. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25 through 27, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. When they had the Olympic Games back then, they'd give them a wreath around their head if they won. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. In other words, we follow Christ to get a crown that lasts forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it a slave. So after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And so this crown is for those who exercise self-discipline and train. That to become a disciple, they do what the word says. They keep his commands. So this crown is an incorruptible crown or the victor's crown. The next crown is the crown of rejoicing. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. It says, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory? In the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. 
This is referring to those who go out and witness and win souls. Billy Graham, you know, if you go to Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, Franklin Graham, Greg Laurie, they're going to get this crown. They go out and win other souls, a crown of rejoicing. Because Paul's saying, you know, to the Thessalonians, you are my glory and my crown. And so that's the crown he's going to receive from Jesus. Then there's the crown of life. James 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And again, I think this is a ubiquitous crown. Everybody gets it. You know, we get the eternal life. And it's for those specifically who suffer for their faith and who even are martyred. Now, they're going to be the special ones that get this crown. Then there's the crown of glory in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 2. Through verse 4, it says, Be shepherds of God's flock under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, not eager to serve, or, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. And so this particular crown of glory is for those who have served in the church as elders. Leadership in the, sh- in the church. That's who that's reserved for. Now, does God expect us to work for one of these crowns? Does God expect us to do things? In other words, well, if you have your Bibles, this is a good idea to open up to Luke chapter 19. This is the parable of the minas. It is also repeated in the parable of the talents, and that's in Matthew chapter 25, and I'm not going to go to that one. I'll just do the minas. And it's going from verse 12 to 24. And this is a case where there is an appointed king and he goes away to a faraway place and he leaves some minas, it's like money, with the servants that are there. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 12 of Luke chapter 19. And it reads there, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him. And sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want you, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. The master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you? that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away and give it to him or give it to the one who has 10 minas. Now you read this and we are his servants and he has given us not money, but he has given us gifts. Every person that is a believer has some type of gift. You should know what your gift is. And there's different lists in scripture of what those are. 1 Corinthians 12 uh, and 14. 
You can go to Ephesians chapter 4. You can go to Romans. Uh, I believe it's chapter 12. It's either 8 or 12. You can go and you can look up these gifts and what these gifts are. You have one of them. You don't, may not know what they are, but if you do, great. Exercise that gift. If your gift is leadership, exercise leadership. If your gift is encouragement, encourage those who are around you. If your gift is prayer, pray like mad. Whatever your gift is, do it with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus invests in us and expects a return on his, on his investment. That's what he's doing here. He expects us to return something to him. Something with interest. So in accordance with the faith that he has given us and the gifts of the Spirit he has blessed us with, we are to perform tasks. The task that we perform for the Lord will bring for him a return on his investment when we earn the return and he will reward us for it. So there's a reward for us that is waiting that he's going to want to give to us because we have carried out his will. So does Jesus expect us to work for him? Yes, he does. He expects us to do something. What is to be our motivation to work for the Lord? Is it to earn reward or avoid loss? In this world, so like I said earlier, previously, everything you do either has a reward or you suffer the consequences for it. The same thing is going to be true in heaven. And this is a double-edged sword. A reward is given to those who produce a return. He rewards both a great and very small return. If you notice, he said, if you just put it in the bank and got interest, you know, a measly little 2% or whatever it might be, that's fine. And then the person who has a whole lot of return, he says, great, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He praises both, whether it's a little or a lot. The caveat is don't believe that you can do nothing. That's what God's telling us. He's saying you need to do something. Does it mean you're saved? No, this has nothing to do with salvation. It only has to do with discipleship and our idea of being sanctified or set apart. Is there a loss of reward that we could suffer? Yes, there is. There may be a reward that's withheld from us because we decided not to use our gift and get involved in what the Lord is doing. What does he call the person who doesn't do what he desires in Matthew chapter 25 verse 21? This is what he says. To the one who did what he wanted him to do, he says, well done thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a, in a very few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. But the one servant who did not work for the master, he calls wicked and lazy. Now, do you like to be called Lazy. You lazy, look, you leave a slime trail like a slug. Why don't you just get up and start walking and do something for God? Now, as I'm saying this, there's going to be this tendency to have guilt. Like, I I don't do anything for the Lord. I look at anything that I do and I go, it's not enough. And so we can get caught under this trap of condemnation. We're not supposed to. And I'll get to explain this a little bit more. But our motivation for doing good works is to hear the Lord say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The moral of these parables is do something. Be about the Lord's business. You will be blessed if you do and you will suffer loss if you do not. 
Now, we are given a command also in Scripture to store up in heaven our treasure. How do you store up your heaven, or your treasure in heaven? You have to do something. Matthew six nineteen it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So verse 20, it's store up whatever it is that we can send on to heaven. Now this is a directive. This is given in the imperative mood in the second person plural. That means it's a command for everybody. That's simply what it means. Now, one person who is not a disciple is not to do nothing. That's a double negative, which means we're all to do something, whatever that something is. Now, I I gave you these illustrations of running the race that Paul talked about and also boxing. You know, you're supposed to box. And in Ephesians, it talks about this idea in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I believe that word struggle is the wrong word. It's the wrong interpretation. Other passages in other Bibles, the same passage says, uh, for our fighting or our athletic contest or our conflict or our contending. I believe all those words are wrong. It is the only word in Scripture, it's only used once, and it refers to wrestling. And so it should read, for we do not wrestle or we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in the heavenly realms. And so Paul was into athleticism. I'll bet he'd go to the games and root on for the boxer or the runner or the the javelin thrower. He was a man into sports is what he was. He would love the Super Bowl. You know, he'd turn that thing on if he had a television and it'd root probably for the Kansas City Chiefs or who knows, or maybe the 49ers. But he would root for somebody because he was into sports. He probably did sports himself. That's why he's using these metaphors of running a race and boxing and wrestling. He puts all those together. Now, can you imagine? Now, I used to wrestle. Wrestle, it was hard. It was difficult. And it hurt. And when you won, it was good. It was really good. I can remember, now I I was okay, you know, I went to CIF, but I I can remember going to some tournaments. And at the tournaments, especially one at your home school, you know, the the other students from the school would come out and they would kind of watch, the cheerleaders would be there, and then they would always appoint a beautiful young lady to give the awards. And if you were at the home school, usually the lady gave you a kiss. And I remember being on the number one, I had won the tournament, and here she comes, the most beautiful girl in school. And I'm going, oh, this is good, you know? And so the reward was good for that. But if, if you're wrestling, if I went to the wrestling, uh, the tournament, and I got out on the mat, and I just, okay, and I didn't go after the person and start wrestling the person, the coach, he would just go crazy. Here's the, Get in there, double leg takedown, do a reversal, you know, but all of the double arm bar, full half Nelson, you know, all of these moves he would be screaming for us to accomplish and win. Or what if you got in a boxing ring? There was a film that was produced by Charlie Chaplin in 1915 called The Chaplain or The Champion. And in that, and you can go watch it, in that he's in a boxing ring and he's going back and forth with this guy and he doesn't want to get hit. 
And so he dances around the guy and dances around the official, the referee on the inside. And he ends up doing it so much that the referee starts boxing the other guy. And he encourages it. You know, and he, he does that a couple of times. And it's funny. But if you got in a boxing ring and you did that today, they'd say, fight. And you're supposed to engage. And so with running... If people get out there and they're running the hurdles or whatever it might be, or the 440 or the the, the 100-yard dash, you're supposed to run it to win. You're not supposed to run it just to be a bystander. And so this encouragement, what Paul is using here, is go out and do something. And also, when we go out and do something, not that we're seeking the reward. Remember, we're supposed to do it so our master will say, well done thou good and faithful servant. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, it talks about gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Our works are going to be tested by fire to see which ones remain. And the one that are, ones that are done out of a pure heart and pure motivation, that's the gold, silver, and precious stones. The ones that are done for earthly or fleshly reasons, they're going to be burned up. And we do both. All of us will end up doing both. But the greatest truth out of all this reward is you don't have to work at it. And that's the idea. If, if you're under this cloud of having to do something to get a reward, we don't produce fruit that brings to us a reward by trying. I've used this illustration before. Grapevines right now in San Diego, they're going to get ready to bud. All the trees are starting to bud in the San Diego River Valley. You can see it. Well, the grapevines are going to bud. And I take care of one little vineyard. And when I go to that vineyard, I I get down on my knees and I listen. You know what I hear? They're trying to push out the grapes. No, I don't hear that at all. (laughs) They're just sitting there. And all of a sudden, these things just pop out. And then come the blooms. And then come the grapes. They don't even try. They're just abiding. This is John 15. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. You are already clean because you have the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So all you have to do is abide in Jesus. You will produce the fruit and you will get the reward. If somebody says, you're probably not even saved because you're not doing anything. That's one of those flat earther ideas. That's one of the eclipse ideas. Abide in Christ. Follow him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you will receive a reward. Even for the tiniest effort that you have put forth. Whether it's just giving a cup of water in the name of Jesus. Or you save thousands of people. So I'm going to apply all of this here. We've gone through theological and ethical issues, euthanasia, war, a just war, talked about Israel and Ukraine, self-defense, capital punishment, pacifism, welfare, EBT, orphans and widows, the role of the government in these issues, rewards in heaven. Are we to work for a crown? No, I think we're just simply to abide. 
We are to abide in Christ, follow him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will produce fruit and you will be rewarded. Should you have the threat over your head that you're going to suffer loss, it's probably a good idea, like, do a check. Am I doing what I'm supposed to do for the Lord? And if you are, wonderful. If you're not, put the shoes on, right? That's what we're supposed to do. Now, at this time, what we're going to do is we're going to receive communion. The fact that we get to bear fruit is all because of Jesus Christ. And we're going to remember his death, burial, and resurrection by the receiving of communion. And the ushers are going to come forth. And if the worship team would come up, we're going to sing a song. All Who Are Thirsty is the song we're going to sing. And if you thirst for something more from Jesus, all you have to do is ask him. And say, Lord, fill my cup. Fill it up. That's another song we could sing. But it's this idea of doing what the Lord wants us all to do. Now, what's going to happen as I sing this song, if you need to say to the Lord, Lord, I, I really haven't done enough. Not that I'm under a cloud of condemnation, but maybe you want me to do more. Just show me. Open a door for me. And that's what Paul prayed, that he would have an open door of great ministry. And whatever your ministry might be, the Lord can open that door and present it right before you. So as we begin to play the song, after that, the guys will come forward. They'll grab the cup and the plate of the cup and the bread, and they'll pass it out and just remain where you are. And then Pat will come up and he'll pray for the elements for us to receive.